Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility presents the Vermont Conversation with David Goodman, exploring ideas with innovators, changemakers, business leaders, politicians, and activists. This special feature from Vermont Businesses for Social Responsibility is underwritten in part by the Alchemist Brewery of Waterbury and Stowe, proud B Corp, using the power of business to support a clean environment and economic opportunity for all. Vermont Student Assistance Corporation. VSAC helps students of all ages save, plan, and pay for college and career training with education and career planning services, need-based grants, scholarships, low-cost education loans, and Vermont's official 529 college savings plan. Green Mountain Power delivering clean, cost-effective, and highly reliable power to customers and offering cutting-edge products and services to reduce costs and carbon. UVM Medical Center, Burlington, Vermont, the heart and science of medicine. Norwich Solar Technologies, providing complete clean energy services to Vermont's schools, towns, nonprofits, and businesses. Concept2, designers and manufacturers of Concept2 rowing oars, indoor rower, ski erg, and bike erg, and proud to support nonprofit groups such as the Green Mountain Club. Let's Grow Kids, a statewide campaign about the need for more high-quality, affordable childcare in Vermont to better support our children, families, communities, and economy. And nearly 700 VBSR business members who believe that sustainable business practices value people, planet, and profit. Learn more at www.vbsr.org. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. This week, we're going to spend the hour looking at America at a tipping point with two leading writers and thinkers on this issue. In the second half hour, we'll be joined by Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government at Harvard and co-author of the best-selling book, How Democracies Die. But first, we're joined once again by Bill McKibben. He's the founder of the grassroots climate campaign 350.org. He's the Schumann Distinguished Scholar in Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. And he's a contributing writer to The New Yorker, where he writes the weekly newsletter, The Climate Crisis, we recorded our conversation yesterday. Bill McKibben, you have dedicated years of your life to building nonviolent social movements to change and challenge the status quo on environmental issues. In the last two weeks, in the midst of a global pandemic, there has been a global uprising against racism and police brutality. Why do you think this rebellion is happening now? And do you think we're at a tipping point for social change? God, let's hope so. Um, One of the good things about this moment is that lots and lots and lots of people are coming together. And it's been inspiring, for instance, to watch in my small part of the world as the environmental movement uh, uh, really is, you know, geared up to try and back and support Black Lives Matter and and so on. Uh, 350 dot uh, org, which I helped found, has uh, as of this afternoon, I think we raised about a hundred thousand dollars for bail funds for people. There was a tremendous webinar by our um, 350.org crew, uh, including the leader of 350 Minnesota, uh, who's been a real leader in the fight there that erupted after uh, George Floyd was murdered. Uh, the the head of um, 350 Minnesota, Sam Grant's an African-American, and he's done a tremendous job of helping people understand that all these fights are of a piece. I was writing for The New Yorker last week, just pointing out 
that it's the same communities that deal with pervasive police brutality that are also the communities that are the places where we stick things like coal-fired power plants. And so people whose bodies are already under assault, and I don't mean just by being hit, I mean there's a lot of research showing that if you live in a place with bad policing, uh, you have higher blood pressure, lower immunity, uh, you live fewer years just because of the stress that, that accelerates aging. Um, um, they're also the same people who are having to breathe particulates in the air. African-Americans have three times the asthma rate of white Americans. So I can't breathe has many meanings, you know, um, and it's always the same people who don't get to breathe. I want to talk about interconnections. Uh, the piece you wrote in the New Yorker last week entitled Racism, Police Violence, and the Climate are not separate issues. Um, you were just referring to some of that. Where do you see these movements overlapping now, the events of the last two weeks against white supremacy and the work you've spent much of your life uh, working on, which is environmental justice? Well, they're all about standing up to power, obviously, and 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 the institutions that are that dominate our societies. But in certain ways, I think it goes deeper than that. Um, you know, you and I are of an age that we've lived our lives in the shadow, political shadow of Ronald Reagan. He was really the person who changed our political world and did it by persuading people that, you know, markets solved all problems that, um, uh, you know, our basic job in life was to get rich ourselves and that everything else would take care of itself. You know, what, uh, what his most famous laugh line was, you know, the nine scariest words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. But now we wander into these whole mess of problems that we can't solve on our own. Uh, you know, the nine scary, the scariest sentence in the English language is probably we've run out of ventilators, you know, or the hillside behind your house is caught on fire. You know, good luck dealing with that, you know, with your entrepreneurial, innovative, uh, self-actualizing, uh, uh, lonesome self, um, that's when you need other people around you uh, working together. And just the same way that people are standing up to the fossil fuel industry, they're standing up to the police department and saying, we just are not going to have unchecked uh, uh, power over us that just makes our lives increasingly impossible. So, I mean, this is a moment for for big change in lots of ways. And it's got to come fast. It's got to come fast because people won't take that kind of domination anymore. And it's got to come fast because May was the hottest May in recorded history because the CO2 monitor on the side of Mauna Loa hit 418 parts per million for the first time in at least three or 4 million years, you know, last week. Um, uh, we're, we're in it deep. And, and if we don't figure out how to take big concentrated action now, we've got no chance of getting out. 
Well, one of the things that's also happened uh, in the course of the pandemic is something um, that has certainly shocked me, and I'm sure it shocked you. We saw the bottom fallout of the of big oil, of uh, the demand for oil, the supply of oil shutting down. Uh, you wrote uh, in your blog at the New Yorker, Annals of a Warming Planet, a piece entitled, Are We Past the Peak of Big Oil's Power? What do you think? I think we probably are. Um, the last 10 years, two things have happened. One, the engineers did a pretty remarkable job of dropping the price of a solar panel or a wind turbine. Uh, cut the cost of solar power 90% in a decade. It's now the cheapest way to generate power by far on the planet. I mean, in the sunniest places in the world, it's next to free. Uh, uh, Dubai just signed a contract for what will be the biggest solar array on the planet, and it's coming in at about a penny a kilowatt hour. So, you know, hold that up next to your GMP bill and see how they stack up, you know. Um, um, so that's the one thing. The other thing is that there's been this dedicated movement for a decade that's gone after these guys in really ferocious ways, stopped them in many cases from expanding, building new pipelines, and so on, and taken away their financial lifeline. The fossil fuel divestment movement at this point is a trillion dollar, a $14 trillion campaign, probably the largest anti-corporate campaign in history. So in January, before the pandemic, uh, Jim Cramer, who, you know, the guy who yells at you about what stocks to buy at night on the television, uh, told all his millions of viewers that they should sell all their oil company stocks. He said, this divestment thing has just gotten completely out of hand. You're never going to make money in oil anymore because of divestment, uh, uh, which I got to say, pleased my black heart enormously. But the, um, um, the, the, the combination of those two things was really powerful. And it set up the, I mean, it, it means that the fossil fuel industry is in a vulnerable place. And then it runs into the pandemic and all that vulnerability is exposed over the course of a few weeks instead of the course of a few years. People had been thinking that peak oil demand would probably come in about 2023 or so. But now there's reason to believe that it probably came in 2019 that demand has been depressed by this recession. And then as it grows back, uh, sun and wind will take up most of that new demand. So the big oil has been ever creative in reinventing itself. What are you on the lookout for? They, have, they are not going away. Oh, well, I mean, what they have left is political power. And so they'll use it every way they can. And of course, during the pandemic, they've gotten all kinds of goodies as everybody's, you know, been focused on other things. Um, so, you know, uh, they're busy building the Keystone Pipeline and Trump just put out an executive order saying there'll be no environmental review of any kind for pipe. You can build a 1700 mile pipeline across the middle of the United States without having to get any environmental review whatsoever. <laughs> I mean, they're getting big handouts from the, uh, the bailout, you know, instead of going to support, you know, your local uh, uh, microbrewery, they're going to support uh, giant oil companies that have paid, uh, you know, been buying back stock for years and then already get billions upon billions in federal subsidy every year. So that's what they've got. And, and the question's not, are they going to last 
forever. Well, obviously they're not. I mean, 75 years from now, we're going to run the planet on sun and wind because why wouldn't we? I mean, it's free, more or less. Um, but if it takes 75 years or even 30 years to get there, then the planet is going to, that we run on sun and wind will be a broken planet, you know. So our, our job is to speed it up. It's a race. So one of the things that's also been remarkable during the pandemic is watching these uh, satellite maps of pollution vanish over famously polluted places like India, like Los Angeles. What are we learning about what it's going to take for the earth to recover, to possibly achieve some healthier balance that can be sustainable going forward? Well, there's a lot of things that we've learned and they're interesting and in some ways contradictory. So it was amazing how quickly the air cleared up, you know, uh, uh, the kind of pollution that turns skies gray washes out with the first rainstorm, you know. And so within days, cities like Delhi that were unlivable were, so, I mean, people were literally getting the first lungful of clean air that they ever got in their life. I mean, we're focused on breathing right now because of the horrors that happened in Minneapolis because we watched a man die saying, I can't breathe. Of the 5 million children in Delhi, 2.5 million have irreversible lung damage just from breathing the air there. So it was really remarkable to have that respite even for a moment. But of course, the, the you know, as we lift those restrictions, it's coming right back, the pollution. More to the point, and this is, this is a useful, if somewhat scary piece of information, even at the height, even with really enormous changes in our lives, greater than anything you and I have gone through in the course of our, you know, six decades on the planet, um, um, you know, I mean, do you know anybody who's taken an airplane flight in the last three months? I don't, uh, you know, um, even with those changes, emissions really at their peak only dropped somewhere between 10 and 15%. That's good. I mean, 10 or 15% is nothing to sneeze at. So it shows that you can get some stuff done by changing individual lifestyles. But it also indicates that most of what we're dealing with is pretty hardwired into the systems that we have. And so the main task is going to have to be in very short order, going into the guts of those systems and ripping them out, ripping out the coal and gas and oil and tossing in a lot of insulation and a lot of sun and wind, you know, um, that it's a structural problem uh, as much or more than a problem of individual habits and, and so on. So that's been pretty revealing and interesting to see. I was surprised that the carbon dioxide levels had not dropped more. Um, that Were you surprised by that? Uh, A little. I would have thought that with that much change, I mean, I've known for a long time that we weren't going to solve this problem by individual action, you know, because there's so much infrastructure there that we have to get around. But seeing the numbers was pretty stark, I got to say. And it does highlight, it does, I mean, this was like an x-ray, the pandemic, that showed all the different stresses and, you know, fractures and things in our world. Um, um, And if it showed the weakness of the fossil fuel industry, it also showed 
the deep uh, the deep fossil fuel power that remains sort of stuck in the wiring of our systems. That'll be hard to get out. You're listening to the Vermont Conversation. We're spending this half hour with author and activist and Vermonter Bill McKibben. Uh, Bill, you are a keen watcher uh, and chronicler of social movements around the world. Um, What's one that you are kind of get a lot of hope from right now? Well, I I think that the outpouring of people into the streets around police brutality and racial inequity is probably the most remarkable thing I've seen in my lifetime. I mean, I I you know, I was 6 or 7 or 8 years old at the height of the stuff in the 60s, so I really wasn't paying much attention to it at all, you know. Um uh, I had other things on my mind like, you know, learning to ride a bike. Um uh, so I, you know, this is a, this is like nothing I've ever witnessed, and I think the thing that's so amazing was to see that a people kept coming out even after the kind of crazy repression that the Trump administration threw at people, even after he was sending the National Guard hither and yon, even after he was tear gassing everybody in Lafayette Square for his idiot photo op so on and so forth. People just kept coming out in larger and larger and larger numbers. And that was great. And the other thing that's been great is to see people coming out in large numbers um, in places that you wouldn't expect uh, in pretty much all across America. And to see, you know, uh, institutions that you wouldn't necessarily expect stepping up. I mean, I'm no big fan of the NFL or Roger Goodell, the guy who runs it, but to see him, you know, forced to say black lives matter and we're going to change. That was pretty good sign that, that, I mean, if there's a institution associated with, you know, kind of the status quo in America, the NFL would be pretty close to it. I even saw that today that there were NASCAR drivers pressuring NASCAR to get the Confederate flag out of all their, you know, uh, uh, raceways. Um, I mean, once movements have changed, the the point of movements on this scale is partly to get new legislation, but it's also largely to change the zeitgeist, to change people's sense of what's normal and natural and obvious. And to have watched that happen over the last few weeks is really moving. People have a very different sense of how we're going to think about, say, the police in the time ahead. And, and, you know, tactics that would have worked a little while ago are now just being widely mocked and ridiculed. When the President of the United States uh, is on Twitter trying to somehow insist that the 75-year-old guy who got beat up by the police in Buffalo was an Antifa agent using a scanner to, I mean, you know, uh, thanks, Detective Don. We're glad you're, you know, hard at work on the case. Uh, people are just, you know, people are done with it. And who knows whether it'll last, but at least for the moment, the polling indicates that something big has happened, you know. Well, let, let's just talk about that polling in a Washington Post poll out today uh, to the question, do you support or oppose the protest following uh the killing of George Floyd, uh, 
overall uh, three out of four Americans, but it gets more interesting when you break it down. Uh, nearly 90% of Democrats, okay, no surprise there, three out of four independents, and more than half of Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> so how, what explains that? I mean, there's well, enormous forces, uh, the president's bully pulpit that are aligned against this, but it doesn't seem to be working now. Well, the, yeah, the president's bully pulpit isn't working anymore because he's turned it into a bully pulpit. And everybody recognizes that at some level, you know, that, that, and that's part of what's happening here. You know, with any normal human being as president, we probably would have had a, you know, things, there would have been attempts right away to diminish, unify, bring people together, stamp out fires, whatever, instead of just trying to make it worse. Um, and because we've had Trump pouring on the flames, really things have built in a way that we haven't seen before. And and I, I, I think in the end, that's probably been um, useful. Um, you know, we've had other moments when it looked like we were going to do things. But as my friend Lennox Yearwood said the other yesterday, the head of the Hip Hop Caucus, he said, we don't need this to be a moment. We need it to be a movement. And really, that feels like what's happening now. How optimistic are you that this inflection point, if that in fact is where we are, will bend towards justice? Well, I mean, politics only works if you work it, you know. Um, I mean, if everyone just stops doing what they're doing and whatever, or if anyone, if everyone just, you know, I mean, it's clear that we have to elect Joe Biden, uh, but if anybody thinks that electing Joe Biden is sufficient to deal with our problems, then nothing will happen. Uh, uh, so clearly, I mean, it's an even numbered year. It would, we'd be out of our minds not to elect Joe Biden, not to turn, you know, turn Mitch McConnell out of control of the Senate, not to do those things. But if we do them, all it does is give us a chance to then actually go do the politics that will make change happen. Um, the other thing I'd say is, I think it's important that we not get so fixated on political levers of power that we forget that there's other power in our society too. We've spent most of the year in the climate movement organizing really hard against the biggest banks and asset managers and insurance companies in the world, against the real pillars of, of global capital. And with far more success than we had thought when we started the, all this work, this stopthemoneypipeline.com work. Um, you know, BlackRock, the biggest asset manager on it, really the biggest box of money on planet Earth, something like $1 in eight on our planet rests in their digital vaults. It's, you know, it's made a series of statements in January saying that this was the most important issue facing the financial world and that it was going to govern every decision that they made from here on in. And they've begun haltingly to make good on some of that with their votes on shareholder proxies and things. So we don't need progress just in the political sphere. We need to be going after all the levers of power and as, and as rigorously as we can. What are you going to be focusing your efforts on, your activism on uh, going forward? Well, I do think that through November, 
the highest point of leverage that most of us have uh, is is electing somebody you can pressure to do things, you know? Um, and so that's really important through November and really important to resist the siren call of, you know, well, he's not good enough or whatever. Yeah, he's not good enough. Um, um, so that's why you elect him and push him to be better. Um, um, but we're going to keep, I'm going to keep a lot of pressure going as best we can on the financial world too. Partly because when we're dealing with climate change, really with a lot of these issues, the political process, even at its best, moves very slowly and it only moves one jurisdiction at a time, you know, one state or city or country at a time. One of the appeals of working in the financial world is, I mean, these guys are super rich and it's super hard to move them. But if you do, things happen quickly. You know, something happens in the stock market's very different 45 minutes later. And things happen globally. Washington, probably much for the best, doesn't really rule the world anymore. But Wall Street kind of still does. Um, and, and so we've got some leverage there to make change, I think if we push hard. Okay. Well, Bill McKibben, I want to thank you for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. Absolutely. You know, we all have time to do all this because we, 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 you don't have to spend three hours every night listening to the Red Sox. So, you know, there we are. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, as my son has pointed out, uh, it's a great year for the Red Sox. <laughs> um, so uh, the, the Mookie thing doesn't look so bad in retrospect, right? <laughs> Okay. Well, Bill McKibben is a contributing writer to The New Yorker. He writes their Climate Crisis uh, newsletter. He is also the co-founder uh, of the grassroots uh, campaign, 350.org, and the Schumann Distinguished Scholar on Environmental Studies at Middlebury College. 